My name is Hanson Oak, and I'd like to tell you my story. I welcome you to sit and sip a beverage that warms you, listen to words that you've never heard yet know by heart. We are strangers but old friends, you and I, family with no relation other than our humanity, and that should be enough, would be enough, if more of us knew that we weren't alone here. Many of us have met and parted fondly, though you may not remember, and would be reminded should we meet again but we have a tremendous capacity to forget. Evolution has many children. We are only one of them and not the best ones at that. The others mostly tiptoe around us, hiding or going unseen because we don't want to see them, until we are confronted with the unsettling realization that we share this planet with many and some are higher up on the food chain than us. You see, the history of life is like a tree. We see the trunk, the mass of it, obvious and unavoidable. We see the branches, that canopy, how it transitions, moves, stretches towards the sun, the unattainable future. What we do not see is the truth of that tree, the roots, the grounding below the surface we stand on. Most of our story is below that surface, unseen, often guessed at, and sometimes outright denied. The history of our traditions is no different. Holidays cross over one another, twist and combine. The roots lost to modernity, to the light we spread over the darkness, but More often than not, those roots emerge, and we're forced to deal with a past that we never truly laid to rest. Years ago, in the silence between the winter solstice and Christmas, I found myself in just such a situation. A brutal storm had taken me captive, holding me in Iceland, an ocean away from my family and my children. The weather was resolute to cling to the face of the earth as the days passed and Christmas Day inched closer. I'd never been away from my children on Christmas morning, but it seemed unavoidable that this would be the first time. Every year of their life I had been there to devour their excitement when they woke and rode the waves of youthful exuberance to the ballroom of our home where a certain jolly gnome had certainly paid his respects to the good children of the house. That year, it seemed, I had no recourse but to wait in the hostel I'd taken shelter in until nature grew bored with the storm she had created and moved on, and I was not alone. There were dozens of others, families and individuals, held in purgatory against our wishes. The building was converted from a grand home donated to the travelers of the land, but with the birth of boutique hotels and Airbnbs and other short-term alternatives to hostels, this place had fallen out of favor. Ironically, it was the type of shelter that I prefer. It was old, oozing with history, and as much a part of the landscape as the rocks that surrounded it. It was quiet and remote and perfect. I'd just come off of a rather challenging excursion, and only planned to stay one night before my ship would arrive, but that was two nights ago, and the satellites cruelly predicted the storm would not release us for another two nights still. This place for the travelers of the land had become one for the hostages of the storm, and was communal in all ways. From rooms, should no singles be available, to bathrooms, since there were only two in a home of 15 bedrooms, some of which were once singles but had since been divided. The meals, which were served in the great hall and laid out along long tables and benches matching their length, were where we all got to know each other over food and drink, though most already knew me and couldn't quite figure out why. 
The morning I was supposed to leave, I lingered in the hall with my tea, feeling sorry for myself and putting off a phone call to my family to inform them of my circumstances. The room was dark, as was the mood, and lit mostly with candles, since the house was old. The electricity added later on, begrudgingly and therefore sparingly. Our hosts had propped up a great spruce in the corner of the room, the high ceilings giving it room to stretch out at almost 20 feet. The tree was not decorated either by design, deciding the nude form of nature had given it was beauty enough, or more likely, the decorations were off-site and impossible to reach. In any event, the conifer shared the same spirit as the rest of us, weary, wilting, and severed from our true place in the world, and our families. While the adults enjoyed the silence, some tea and coffee, some fruit and seeds, the children present band together to decorate a small section of the tree. They strategically hung torn napkins and silverware from its branches. Few of them spoke the same language, but such a minor barrier means nothing to a child. A small act of kindness communicates what words would only complicate. I went back to my room and retrieved some presents I'd gotten from my wife and children, presents that would not reach them as intended, and I took them back to the Great Hall. I placed them under the tree, and the children were delighted at such a familiar tradition being carried on in such a strange place. The other adults and parents did the same, and though our meager offering to the season left the majority of the tree bare both on top and below, the spirit it created warmed the cold, drafty home in a way the fires could not. That was Chris Eve. That day had passed quickly and more pleasantly than I would have expected. That night, though, I sat next to one of the warming hearths with a Mr. Leonard Childs from Amsterdam. We told each other stories, most of them true, until our drinks had gone dry and sleep cold. I wished him a good night, pushed myself up from my chair, when he asked if I thought we'd see the morning. I told him I had no reason to believe that we wouldn't, our odds were as good as they always are, and he'd asked if I'd ever see Evresvier to which I replied that I hadn't. After a long look into the shadows of the room and the snow tapping against the glass in the tall windows, he turned to me and said that he hoped I never would. Then he left to retire to his room, and I was not far behind him, my own bed becoming more insistent on my company. The storm outside seemed to rage more than it had the previous days. The roof creaked and moaned as the winds tried to pry it off so the cold could engulf us. I heard the windows rattle, the walls ached, the fire flickered at like a candle as the draft threatened to suffocate the warmth of it. I had seen enough storms in my life to know that this one carried more than just snow. It made my stomach turn as I made my way to my room, ignoring the raised hairs on the back of my neck. No sooner had I showered and laid in my bed than Leonard was knocking on my door, a low but insistent knock. He told me to come at once to see what had happened, to keep quiet, but hurry. As we moved down the hallway, I could hear the wind howling outside, growing louder and louder. I could feel the house shivering through the floor. I slowed as we approached the great hall. I could see a blinding light coming from the entrance, a sparkling red and orange flicker, making the shadows that surrounded us more deep and dreadful. We entered the room to find it completely changed. The tree, which was only vaguely decorated at its base from our well-meaning but lackluster efforts, was now completely engulfed in beautiful, shimmering glass decorations from top to bottom. No branch was left unspoiled, and wide ribbons of red and gold trim cascaded down its length. The decorations gleamed with glitter, giving the entire tree a feeling that it was glowing. 
Below it, where only hours before rested our meager offering to the children during this unusual Christmas, was now packed tightly with perfectly wrapped boxes, paper, and bows surrounding them until not a single more could fit. The fire that I'd left is no more than an ember now burned full and bright, filling the room with a gently dancing light. I asked who did this, looking at the beauty of the scene in front of me. He was looking into the darkness of the hall that we left and said it was the Resvenir. I asked what that was, now seeking an explanation I'd overlooked earlier. He explained it was a single creature, but had many parts. He feared it would find them here, isolated and vulnerable, and when I asked how it had come unnoticed, he stared at the beautifully dressed spruce towering over the room and said we had opened the door for it and carried them in. He explained that what we were seeing was just an illusion, kept reminding me of it. A combination of the Resmuthir's evolution to fool my eye and my mind's evolution to accept being fooled to avoid being broken. They are not glass bulbs decorating the branches, Mr. Oak, he explained in a voice as low as the crackle of the fire. They are eggs. The ribbons are nothing more than umbilical cords moving nutrients from the tree to the new brood. I stared at the tree, trying to see it as he described it and not how my eyes were viewing it. I asked about the lights. What were those? Surely you've heard of bioluminescence, Mr. Oak, he said. Either my expression or tone gave away my skepticism, and he insisted I look for myself. I walked across the room, stopping a step from the tree, suddenly keenly aware of how it was towering over me. Being this close to the tree, the details became clear, and my stomach soured. What from the doorway looked like lovely flowing ribbons were indeed flowing, but with fluids that gurgled and groaned as they moved through it. What looked like gold accents were nothing more than veins, pulsing capillaries. I touched an ornament, one I'd know I'd place on the branch only hours earlier, and it was cold. Beside it, a tarnished silver ball I knew was not there before was warm against the skin of my finger. Sitting on top of my ornament was a silver hook clinging to the branch above it. The silver ornament beside it had no hook but a slime-covered tentacle that wrapped and strangled the needle-covered branch, wrapping around it until it reached the trunk behind it and was oozing a thick red and yellow fluid. I'd seen enough. I looked back to Leonard, but his focus was no longer on me or the tree. Instead, he was looking into the shadows, the pockets of darkness that clung to the corners of the room. His breath had stopped, his body shook with fear, his eyes wide on the verge of shedding tears. It took a moment, but what gripped him revealed themselves. Small creatures were watching me too, needle tooth and pointed ear, skin white as snow but rough as sandpaper. They were draped in small lengths of felt and flannel. Their eyes were large, black, cold, reflecting nothing, only drinking in the world as the shadows they lived in. I reached out to the tree, keeping my eyes locked with theirs. I plucked an ornament from the tree and held it out. I dropped it, the shadows drawing in a bitter breath as they watched it fall, and then it was the wrong one. They moved forward, dragging the shadows along, elongating the darkness and strangling the light. I plucked up another one. This one was warm, clung to the branch like an apple. I pulled it free, held it up, dropped it again, and they were not happy with me. They shrieked from the shadows, and I covered my ears, turned away on my heel on instinct, and saw the eggs on the tree were beginning to shake and hatch. I ran to the hearth, taking the iron poker from it and stabbed the burning log. I yelled for Leonard to run, to wait the others, and pulled the log from the fireplace, swinging it towards the tree. The hellish elves rushed towards me, the shadows that shrouded them dragged over the chairs and tables, turning them into ash that scattered in all directions. I threw the flaming log into the tree. 
The mass of darkness screamed, the creatures that guided it in rage, they wrapped themselves around the conifer like a death shroud, swallowing the flaming log and protecting the hatching larva. Then, all at once, it dissipated like the fog under the scrutiny of the sun. The fire crackled, the winds outside howled. I heard Lennon banging on the doors, yelling for the others to wake. The shadows in the corners were gone. All the darkness was gone. It looked like an overexposed photo. The contrasts had been removed completely. It felt flat, completely unreal. Then a gift tipped over. A small box dressed in the season's finest paper and ribbon fell to the floor with a gentle thud, and I struggled to remember a time that I was more terrified. I stared at the box, but it was still. Of course, my eyes played their tricks, making me think it was moving when it was not. But the others were. The gifts surrounding the down box, large and small, began to shake and shudder, gently shifting and rocking. A dark liquid began to ooze from their bases, forming a puddle that crawled over the floor. What is that, Mr. Oak? A small voice behind me whispered and I turned to see a girl in her pajamas looking at the thick black liquid building under the tree. I was not the only one whose attention she'd taken. The puddle began to direct itself, rolling towards her. It crept with the speed of a snail. Run, I whispered. But she did not. She was too entranced by the liquid and seeing her reflection smiling back to her from its surface. It whipped forward, striking out like a snake, and I raced to the door and slammed it shut. The liquid splashed against me instead, clinging to my legs and pulling me back across the floor. I reached out, grabbing for anything to stop me, but I slid helplessly across the wood planks that ripped and cut my flesh, installing splinters underneath it. I screamed out as I was slammed carelessly against the corner of a couch, and then my head hit the brick of the hearth. I rolled onto my back, looking into the abyss, my death swelling up to meet me. Then I came to a stop. Hands grasped my arm and torso, holding me tightly, pulling me back from the teeth of fate. It was my fellow travelers. They'd come to my aid, and I couldn't be more upset that they hadn't run to save themselves or more grateful that they hadn't run to save themselves. The gifts rattled and tore open. The strange elfish creatures that hid in the shadows with their sharp teeth and crumbling flesh raced out into the room and attacked. They clawed and bit at my rescuers who screamed and released me to fight back, to tend to their own wounds, to run. Once more I found myself being pulled across the ground. As I did so I passed my fellow guests, my would-be rescuers, now common victims of a creature we'd unknowingly invited in. Those small, terrible little things tore into the soft flesh of men and women. Their blood sprayed out as tiny mouths of endless teeth bit into them. It slickened the floor and hastened my trip into oblivion, coated my skin and burned my eyes. It was a rain of life still warm from those who shed it. Suddenly my hands grabbed onto something solid and I went static. My body threatened to tear itself in half at the sudden stop. I'd latched onto a support column and Leonard grabbed hold of me soon after, pulling me free. He stood me up. I looked around, unable to catch my breath, unable to control my heart studding, watching death bloom so curiously around me as if the frame rate of time was infinity, and each second stretched a lifetime which, for those around me, was not long at all. Where are the children? I managed to ask. Did you get them out? He told me it was impossible to pierce the storm and that they were all hiding up in the attic. I couldn't help but feel the weight of how many orphans we'd find waiting for us if we survived this at all. That's not to say that the bloodshed was one-sided. 
Many had stabbed and broken the small creatures by hands and underfoot. Some were swung by the ankles and arms, smashing against stone and timber, breaking them open like melons and splashing out their innards just the same. If we humans excel at anything, it's not laying down to simply die. I heard Leonard calling to me, snapping me out of my trance. He was making his way to the tree covered in blood and open wounds, whole bits of his flesh missing, consumed. I pushed forward, trying to fight off the brood as I went, pulling them off people, kicking and punching and clawing at them until I made my way to him. He grabbed hold of the tree firmly and began to pull it. He told me the tree had to go, the creatures would follow it as a hive of bees is compelled to follow the queen. I joined him at his side and wrapped my hands around the branches of the tree and began to pull. It toppled over, the creatures screamed out and abandoned their fight to protect the tree. We dragged the giant evergreen across the room, knocking over furniture, rogue branches smashing windows and lamps, the floor groaned as we scratched and gouged it. The others rushed to us to help, well, those with enough strength and limbs to heave this cursed tree out of the room and into the wide hall, all the while accepting the bites and claws of the creatures. My clothes were torn to ribbons, my flesh cut and bleeding, my feet slipping on the blood coating the floor, but we managed it. Leonard let go, ran ahead and opened the two doors to the house before grabbing the top of the tree and screaming like a madman as he heaved the tree into the storm, mostly by himself. We all screamed and struggled and pushed until the tree made it through the threshold, and then we stopped. The creatures were no longer interested in finishing their quarrel with us and quickly departed to chase the tree. The storm swallowed them all, Leonard among them, and soon all was quiet. I turned to the others and saw behind them the children standing at the top of the stairs. The victims of the night were pieced together and placed in the freezer until the storm passed two days later. When help did arrive, we were at a loss to explain what had happened, but my mention of the strange elfish creatures elicited knowing glances among the local authorities who offered their condolences. The tree was found about a mile away, its branches stripped and naked like a skeleton picked over by scavengers. Unfortunately, our hero Leonard Childs was never found. Not a piece of his flesh or drop of his blood had ever been recovered. To this day, when I see people driving with fresh-cut trees tied to the roof of their cars, I wonder if they're inviting more than just the spirit of the holiday into their homes. As for the celebration of solstice and Christmas at the Oak Estate, we have only used artificial trees ever since. <laughs>